Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History. I am your host, Rob Denning. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Tom Rust about his new book, Watching Over Yellowstone, the U.S. Army's Experience in America's First National Park, 1886-1918, which was just published today on June 5, 2020, by the University Press of Kansas. Professor Rust, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And uh, just a quick correction, uh, Watching Over Wonderland was the intended title, but uh, the editors thought nobody knows what Wonderland was anymore because that was an old-fashioned term for Yellowstone. So now it's officially called Watching Over Yellowstone. Watching Over Yellowstone. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Watching Over Yellowstone, the U.S. Army's experience in Yellowstone National Park, 1886-1918. Great. Well, before we get into the book and talk more about that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, you bet. Uh, I'm a native Montana, and I grew up in uh, Bozeman, Montana, which is only about 90 miles north of Yellowstone Park, so that probably explains some of my uh, love for Yellowstone, and we used to go there all the time as a kid, and, uh, you know, just even for a, for a you know, Sunday afternoon drive, we'd, we'd go into the park and see the wildlife and uh, go to Yel- see Old Faithful. I've seen Old Faithful every single year of my life, so uh, I, I take that with pride because I have an ongoing love affair with Yellowstone. So um, I uh, uh, graduated uh, from the University of Minnesota in 1992, uh, interestingly enough, with a degree in classical history uh, and a minor in, in classical studies. Um, but then I, uh, uh, after that, when I went for my master's degree, I got my master's degree uh, mostly in American history. I had a minor field in early modern Europe. Uh, and I ended up uh, then also getting a uh, second master's degree in education because I decided I wanted to um, be a high school teacher, go back to my original intent when I went to college, which was I was going to be a, a football coach and a, and a history teacher, kind of my worst stereotypes now. But um, <laughs> but I was going to, so that after I got my master's degree, but I pretty much priced myself out of the market with two master's degrees by that point. So, uh, but I fell into a job at uh, Montana State University Billings at that point um, and decided that I loved teaching college. College was great and um, ended up uh, getting my PhD from the University of Leicester in England, and uh, which uh, was a phenomenal experience. And I've been uh, teaching at uh, Montana State now for 21 years. I've uh, done a number of different jobs there in addition to teaching, including running the honors program. And um, I was uh, the state coordinator for Montana National History Day for a while. Uh, as a service learning coordinator, uh, now I'm currently also the faculty athletic representative on campus too. So uh, I've, I've worn many hats and a long, long period of time uh, uh, teaching in, at uh, Montana State Building. So, but I was lucky enough to teach in Montana, which is where I want to be. So, and so it sounds like you've had a long history with the area and with and a long interest in Yellowstone. But can you talk about the specific origins of this book? Where did it come from? Did it did it, did it develop out of a, out of a research project in grad school, or how did this come about? 
Uh, actually, no. Uh, this was one of those things that eventually I kind of always had in the back of my mind since the early 90s before uh, I even completed my, my master's degree. Uh, I worked in Yellowstone Park uh, in the concessionaires. I was a the controller at Bridge Bay Marina. I was a cashier and then an assistant controller at Lake Lodge and then the controller at Bridge Bay Marina, which is kind of funny. A historian with math anxiety being an accountant is like living a Woody Allen movie. <laughs> but um, living in Yellowstone, uh, you have to realize, especially back in the 90s, first of all, there's no television in the park at all. It used to drive visitors nuts and they were amazed. They'd go to these beautiful hotels and there's no television. Uh, there was also back then no internet access. And so, you know, what do you do? Well, you hang out with your friends and you talk with people and you hike and camp, but you also read and you read a lot. And so as I was there and we were reading, I was reading um, one of the books uh, uh, at the time. Well, there were two books at the time that were that were uh, that I was reading. One's called The Yellowstone Story by Aubrey Haynes, who used to be the, the park historian. And then the other one was Death in Yellowstone by Lee Whittlesey, which is uh, uh, just came out. Um, in one of the years I was teaching there and both of them touched on, uh, the military era in Yellowstone. And I was like, Oh, this is great. Uh, I need to know more about this. You know, I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I was in the middle of grad school. It was during the summer of just before I defended my master's thesis, which was on the military in, in Montana at a place called Fort uh, Ellis. And so I was like, oh man, this is great. So, you know, you know, you know, historians do, we read books all the time and we need to know. And, you know, once you get that interest, you start trying to find out. Well, I found out there wasn't much written other than um, one other book by a professor at the University of Montana um, that had talked about the military era. And most of the time it's, it's kind of tangential to the development of the National Park Service um, and how the military came in and provided the operational structure for the park service um, ranger program. And it's almost always very positive. And, uh, but I did notice, of course, you know, being highly fluent in, in those kinds of issues regarding social history, being in grad school and being, you know, you know, immersed in that and those kinds of discussions that almost all the works focused largely on the administrative aspects, the superintendents, the decisions they made, um, and how that built into uh, or, or kind of faded into the uh, the National Park Service. And so, as a social historian, uh, my first um, you know, and primary love is social history. I was like, what about the soldiers? Well, there was always occasional little anecdotes in some of those other ones about it, but I always wanted to explore what was it like to be a soldier in in yellowstone you know these guys coming from you know new york city and they come to yellowstone and you know what's 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 it like first of all they're soldiers they didn't necessarily sign up for that and then they end up going to yellowstone and that's a whole different world than new york city to be sure and uh i was probably particularly attuned to that because uh as a manager in the park i um uh, had employees from all around the country, and some of them, the idea of Yellowstone was a little bit more than what the reality of Yellowstone was like for them. And some, you know, particularly from urban environments, man, they were just kind of freaked out by by the wilderness and how much wilderness and how isolating Yellowstone could be. And so, you know, being aware of of different people's reactions to Yellowstone um, kind of made me a little bit attuned to that because my reaction, having grown up here and you know, had spent every you know. Yeah, every moment that you know, my family could in the in the park, you know, it was it was it was very interesting, and so that idea just kind of germinated. But 
you know, I'd had that, um, I'd, I'd already had my, my master's thesis going. And so I finished that up and then, you know, my doctoral dissertation, you know, it was a little bit different. It actually is in uh, comparative frontier studies with uh, ancient Rome and the American West and uh, with a lot of archaeology. So I, you know, had these things and new things. I was always back there and the new projects pop up every once in a while and, and um, that I hadn't anticipated. So got there, but then, you know, once I got, um, you know, I'm fully promoted, you know, I got tenure, I got fully promoted. You know, it was like, okay, what do you want to do now? Well, you know what? I want to do this. I've been having, sitting on this idea for 20 years. It was time to do it. And so I was lucky enough to get a sabbatical and, you know, the minimal funding that I needed to go do some archival work and, and was able to, to do this. So it was really more of a labor of love than anything. Yeah, and that really comes through in the book itself. It's it's as we were saying before we went out before we started recording here. I think the, it's a it's a fun book because it talks about the daily lives of the the soldiers, and as you mentioned earlier, all of the or a lot of the books that have been written before that had focused on the officer class, and so your desire to focus on the soldiers themselves. How do you find the stories of the soldiers? What was your source base? How did you you know how did you build this reconstruction of the soldiers' lives? Well, fortunately, um, I'd kind of done a little bit of that in, in some of my previous works. Uh, my uh, master's thesis, which I turned into a book on Fort Ellis in Montana, uh, I found um, that a number of different sources were, were very useful. One, newspapers um, would relate it. Occasionally, there's diaries, but not as many as obviously you would like. Uh, but one of the richest sources that I found were, uh, were the, um, uh, court-martial records, the general court-martial. Now there's two types of court-martial records. There's kind of the, what are called the garrison court-martial, which are kind of the minor offenses, if you will. And, you know, there's not a lot of testimony that's recorded, but the general court-martial records turned out to be a very, very rich um, uh, source of material for the common soldiers so much so that you know you that you have testimony and dialogue in some cases uh, particularly in in one very very long court martial uh, about a murder um, where uh, in 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 the winter time where there's these these isolated posts throughout the park where they would patrol for poachers and they would basically put five guys uh, in the middle of nowhere I mean quite literally nowhere. Uh, and then it snows, you know, it snows 120 to 180 inches in various parts of the park. And so these guys are cut off from everybody. And uh, it, a relatively unpleasant episode happened where there was some tension. These guys didn't like each other really to begin with. And they, they were there for a year. And so over the summer, they, they, they already didn't like each other. And then it turns into a, turns into a murder uh, where um, kind of a mutiny and, and the sergeant involved with the, uh, or in charge of the station ends up killing one of his uh, subordinates, a private and shooting another one. Um, and, uh, and, and the testimony was over 120 pages of, of testimony and something. So, I mean, you can really get a feel for, uh, in my opinion, I thought a real feel for, you know, how, you know, the soldiers were interacting with one another, how they were interacting with tourists, what it was like to be locked up. I mean, I always kind of thought over the recent COVID uh, isolation. Well, at least at least it's not as bad as what, what those guys had to go through for sure. Because I could still have Zoom meetings, and you know, if I needed to go to the grocery store and stuff. But oh man, those guys were they were locked in there, and so the court martial records really were a very, very, very rich source of material. 
Yeah, and I think that provides us a good kind of segue into the content of the book, because much of the book is talking about this tension that soldiers that were stationed at Yellowstone had, because as you mentioned, a few of them were ready for it. Few of them wanted to be there, <laughs> and it turned yeah. and, and so they're they're turned into all kinds of shenanigans. So let, let's let's turn to the book. And so, what from your sense and from your reconstruction of of the uh, sources, what was life like for these soldiers in Yellowstone? Well, first off, let's talk about why they were there in the first place. Sure, Yellowstone um, was in many ways kind of ahead of its time, I and mean, we we take for granted what the idea of a national park is and should be. But you have to realize Yellowstone is the first national park really is, you know, I mean, they're writing the book, they're writing the playbook on this. And um, there was no blueprint. There was no idea. And it's kind of funny. You watch the Ken Burns documentary on the national parks and, you know, it says, oh, it's America's best idea. It's very, you know, kind of, you know, praiseworthy oh it was great and all that and it's the element of democracy it's the best thing you know it's truly democratic well that's true but democracy is messy thing and i think especially right now we're, we're seeing that play out quite literally in the streets and the um the idea of the national park was pushed largely by the railroads and the idea that you know we have this wilderness and, you know, and it's tied in with the greater culture idea of what is wilderness and, and what is the frontier and the frontier is starting to disappear. And this this area had very little economic value other than its natural splendor. Uh, you weren't going to be able to, you know, farm it for sure because it's, you know, it's at 8000 feet and, and the soils, you know, kind of rocky and it's mountainous and. Um, so they they create this national park, but they really didn't know what that meant. You know, it's for the enjoyment of the people and all of that. And that sounds great um, and, and all that. And, and the railroads want to exploit it. They want to bring tourists in because the railroad comes through um, and they, they, they already, you know, are thinking about how can we get people to ride across the, you know, this, the Northern Pacific Railroad. I'm trying to think about how to get people out here onto trains. And so they are one of the major players and trying to put that but they're envisioning this idea of these resorts if you will like you see back east you know these rich person resorts where these little uh you know people come the playground of the wealthy if you will and so uh you have that element that's going on but on the other hand you also have a local populace that has been using the parks for a different idea i mean sure they you know even in the early 1870s, you know, a few people are kind of coming through and there's not a thriving industry, but they're slowly growing. You know, these local people that are putting up little shanty hotels and whatnot. But there's also local people that are going in and they're hunting the game there, um, which is which is very abundant even then. And they're hunting the game to the point of just slaughtering it. And they're, you know, they're doing things like hunting elk just for the eye teeth, not even for the meat. Um, they'll hunt it for the eye teeth, they'll hunt it for the antlers, they'll uh, hunt bison for the heads alone, not any of the meat as well. And some of them are, are hunting for subsistence, some of them are hunting for trophies, some of them are, you know, they're, they're using the park in a very different way. And then you start adding into the political element of it too about, you know, because nobody knows, again, what a national park should be and, and who is it really for. And funding for the park is always problematic. Even today, funding for, for national parks is, you know, I mean, is, is somewhat controversial, especially different projects of the park. And 
And so there, there becomes this whole debate about, you know, how do, what should we be doing at the park? How should we patrol it? Uh, should we lease it out to people and let, you know, kind of sublease and let business take care of, of policing it? Do we hire people? And they hire people to try to do it. And, and it changes with the political administration, whatever administration is in the White House. It changes with however Congress is composed at any given time. And ultimately, it gets to be such a mess that, um, I mean, really, there was a movement to get rid of it, to get rid of the national park, to open it up to private development, just get rid of the park altogether and let uh, probably the railroads or, or, you know, some other business take over the park and let them have it as, as kind of a private thing and do with it what they will. And at that point, Phil Sheridan, who was a, a loved the park. He'd gone several tours there. He was absolutely dismayed by what he had seen uh, as far as the poaching and, and the just wanton destruction of wildlife in the park, that he came up with this idea, hey, we need to we need to do something and I'll bring the army. He's the general of the army at that point. He says, I'll bring the army and I'll bring soldiers in and we'll police this. Which is very interesting, um, given the fact that he that you know he would, had some experience with reconstruction and the army performing police type duties. At the same time, that was very uncomfortable for the army. I mean, the reconstruction element, um, you know, was was very fresh. You know, you have to realize it's it's 1877 is when reconstruction ends, and here we are, you know, 1880s, and we're seeing you know that's still a fairly fresh memory. And the idea of performing those types of law enforcement duties was not comfortable either for military uh, uh, people. Uh, the, the upper echelons of, of an officer corps of the army were very uncomfortable with those duties, as were the increasing number of, of uh, senators and congressmen who had experienced the use of the army in terms of, uh, you know, these types of duties, both in the South, but then also in the labor unrest in the North, you know, things like the railway strike and stuff like that, where, you know, the army had come in on the side and performed these law enforcement duties. And so there was a real tension there with that. But, but Sheridan loved the park so much that he said, I'll bring in troops. Well, it ends up being kind of a big political problem that um, some people who at first had supported the park eventually decided they kind of want to do away with it. And they had, um, they basically withdrew funding to support any type of law enforcement activity in the park by the federal government. And th therefore, um, there had been a writer um, several years before in like 1882 uh, that said, well, if there's, if called upon by the Secretary of the Interior, the U.S. Army will bring troops into the park. And so um, in order to save the park, basically, the Secretary of the Interior asked Sheridan to send troops into the park because his funding was cut, basically eliminated. Uh, that would provide any kind of law enforcement. So Sheridan sent troops into the park in 1886. Nobody knew how long they were going to be there. Um, and it was not a nice, clean cut um, uh, job description either because you know, who do they report to? Well, partially they report to the Secretary of the Interior, partially to the War Department. The soldiers who um, are there, this isn't necessarily what they signed up for. This wasn't the job they wanted. Um, they expected when they signed up. I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons why people joined to be soldiers. Not all of them wanted to necessarily be soldiers, but they knew what they were getting themselves into as being soldiers. And going in and being 
policemen of the park and and rain, what we would call you know rangers if you will uh that wasn't necessarily what they had signed up for and especially the unique um social situation in the park where most of the tourists that came through uh were wealthy people who could afford to take a week off, ride the uh, train across the country, go to Yellowstone and have, you know, this five day tour, grand tour um, that was paid for or that you paid for that uh, took you to all the different places and all these lavish hotels and stuff. Um, you know, they were very wealthy, whereas the, the soldiers, the common soldiers at least were, you know, uh, a little bit uh, uh, excluded from that. And, uh, you know, as much as America likes to envision ourselves as a, classless society particularly in the you know mid to late 19th century you know, there was definitely some class distinctions that led to some of the tension that was going on oh yeah i mean this is the this is the gilded age and what and you know our conception of the gilded age was this rising inequality different class structures and all of that and so it makes it makes sense that there would be kind of this class conflict maybe maybe too far to put it but at least some sort of class tension happening out here where you've got lower class folks who are generally the people in the army first and then you've got all these wealthy tourists and there's are, is an interesting passage in the book about um the soldiers kind of taking a little bit of glee maybe or <laughs> interest in rigorously enforcing the rules of the park against the wealthier folks and just basically to, to watch the wealthy folks squirm a bit. <laughs> yeah. And I like how the, the wealthy tourists kind of push back on that. They do not like under any circumstances, these, these people who they perceive as their social inferiors as having that legal authority over them. And uh, you know, they'll write the commanding officer. My favorite, one of my favorite uh, elements of that was um uh, at this, these, they used to do what were called bear shows. The hotels would take their garbage and they basically take it out to a field. And then bears would come every night and tourists would go and they'd watch it. And soldiers were there to make sure that, you know, nobody got hurt and that tourists keep themselves away. Well, there was one uh, episode where, you know, the soldier just basically, you know, kind of berated some of the tourists for getting too close and they didn't like that. And they wrote the commanding officer about, oh, how insolent this guy was and how, how terrible he was. And, and, yeah, I mean, it was, and they just weren't used to being talked that way. And he ruined their whole experience of watching these bears feast on garbage because he was, you know, trying to enforce the rules. And he did it probably, probably might've done it a little aggressively, but, you know, there's, you know, there was some tensions there because, they weren't allowed to go into the hotels. I mean, they were, you know, in some cases, just a couple hundred yards away. You know, Fort Yellowstone in Mammoth is, you know, only 200 yards from this big, lavish hotel. And they could see these rich people come and they could see the lifestyle. They had these dances and whatnot, but soldiers weren't allowed to, to partake in it. And they could see this stuff, um, this class structure that, you know, excluded them explicitly. And, and so, uh, you know, some tensions might have built up there. And, um, I tried to bring in archaeology. I'm also an archaeologist, so I have my feet in both worlds of archaeology and history. And um, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to be granted access to some of the archaeology reports. And uh, you know, people weren't allowed to bring guns into the park, or if they did, they were they were kind of bound up and checked periodically to make sure that you know people weren't hunting with their with their uh, weapons. But at one of the soldier stations. 
man, they sat there, they sat on the deck as, and we could tell this because there were so many, uh, you know, cartridge casings uh, laying around. They, they sat there on their front deck and just, just shot a crazy number of bullets. So they're just sitting there, you know, shooting stuff away. Interestingly enough, alcohol was not supposed to be served in the park as well. And, you know, soldiers would, would enforce that periodically as well. But at the same time, they would also, uh, we found, uh, numerous archaeologists found numerous uh, alcohol and beer bottles around, and so you know I just have this vision of these guys. You know they're so pissed off at the tourists are just sitting there drinking beer and shooting guns on the front porch of their soldier station when the tourists aren't around. So you know. <laughs> yeah, that that does present a really uh, interesting image there. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about the soldiers themselves. One of the running themes of the book really seems to be that soldiers who are trained to fight wars were instead called upon to do very different things when they were stationed at Yellowstone. So what were some of the duties of these soldiers at, at Yellowstone and why did that seem to clash so much with the military culture or the military training? Well, they, um, I mean, it's interesting because they still had to perform military duties. Let's, let's be clear that this was a, this was a pretty major fort. Uh, you know, it had a couple hundred soldiers there, uh, at any given time, and, and the numbers vary over the years, and they still had to do rifle training. So there was a there's a rifle range just just inside the park, actually, from Gardner. Um, there was, uh, you know, they had to march and drill. Uh, there was a machine gun platoon there, which I always thought was kind of funny because having worked in the park, there might have been times where you would be tempted to use that on tourists. But, uh, you know, why, why would soldiers have a machine gun platoon in Yellowstone? They drew up plans for a mock attack. What would happen if, if Fort Yellowstone was attacked? And I'm like, well, who's going to attack it? I mean, a bunch of renegade tourists or, you know, I don't, I don't see that happening. But nonetheless, they had to continue to perform those duties. But on top of which they would perform at any given post, um, you know, around. I mean, you, you would perform these things. You'd learn to march and drill. You would do and the in, inspection records, which I thought were another great source. Uh, very rich source. They'll talk about how you know these soldiers. There are some things they need to really work on because they are distracted uh, from their military duties. And this is that messiness I was talking about. You know, what job are they doing? Are they are they doing the job that the War Department wanted them to do, or are they doing what the Interior Department? And trying to serve both masters was hard because you know the on the annual inspections, man, they weren't always doing what they needed to be doing. They didn't march well. They didn't always have the best horsemanship skills and, and things like that. So they have to do all that. But then on top of that, the unique duties of the park, um, they had to check tourists in. They had to make sure tourists came in. They registered them just like, you know, when you go into to national parks today, there's that little check post there. They check them in. They, they would uh, inform them of the rules. They would, if they had guns, they had to bind them up so that they would do that uh, so that they couldn't use them and hunt game in the park. They had to patrol the park for uh, poachers, which is, you know, it's a policing type duty where they would go and they would kind of, um, and, and here maybe there's a little overlap with their duties, but maybe not as much as you might think because, you know, the cavalry of the time is, is set up to, to, you know, be in open field and do maneuvers as units, you know, you know, whether it be, you know, from platoons to, to battalions, whatever. Uh, and here you've got, you know, just a couple of guys going through the park at a time trying to hunt down uh, poachers and people that are doing other illegal activity in the park. 
And uh, the soldiers were so ill prepared for that because they're not used to, you know, marching in small groups, hunting uh, poachers. They don't, many of them um, have never been in the mountains before. Uh, they don't understand. And units rotated through so often that by the time they figured out the park, they were usually out. Um, so they don't, they're not familiar with the terrain. They don't understand the wildlife. So they had to hire scouts which again is a military tradition of in the West of you know hiring people because the U.S. cavalry didn't understand um, Native Americans and, and the, the tactics that would be used uh, uh, in in field maneuvers against them. Um, so they would hire people that understood it to, to be the scouts. Oftentimes, Native other Native Americans, other tribes. And so this was kind of a tradition, but you hear they would hire locals that understood the park, use them as scouts to try and hunt them. And so the soldiers become, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, the, the muscle, if you will. Um, and they just kind of follow the, the scouts around. Um, so anyway, they're hunting the poachers, which actually could be a fairly dangerous deal because poachers, uh, there was kind of an organized poaching ring in, in Island Park, Idaho, just outside the park to the west that would come in and, and hunt and uh, game and then ship it off, take the meat and ship it off to the uh, mining fields in, in Western Montana for food. Um, and they were a particularly ruthless bunch, almost kind of, kind of mafia esque, if you will. And, you know, they, uh, they intimidated the local populace. And so the you know, soldiers would have to have to deal with them. Um, they would uh, have to patrol the park uh, for tourists uh, and any transgressions along the main road. So, you know, hunting poachers was kind of backcountry stuff, whereas tourists, you know, they, they would follow um, the, the main routes. And uh, the, the majority of tourists that are coming in are going in on these kind of organized uh, trains of, of, of stagecoaches, but there are some tourists that come in and just kind of camp along the sides of the roads. Well, they would, they would leave fires burning and, and things like that. And so, well, that was another job of, of the, of the soldiers was to patrol and make sure the fires are out, making sure they're not getting too close to the geysers or getting, you know, getting themselves in a position of danger with bears or things like that. So they would have to go around and, and, you know, basically, talk with people and tell them stop doing this and you're not supposed to do that or you know put your campfire out things like that uh and that's where i think some of the social tensions for sure uh come into play um when you know you, you have to tell civilians hey knock it off you're not supposed to be doing that but at the same time um that's not what soldiers are trained for you know soldiers are trained for you know Find, especially in the late 19th century when you know we're trying to emulate the great Prussian cavalry and you know big charges and uh, you know maneuvers on the battlefield you know going off and you know telling tourists to put their fires out or whatever that's not exactly what they're supposed what they're trained to do then at the thermal features because Yellowstone's a very dangerous place um, all those thermal features and all that boiling water man you can get yourself you can get yourself in a world of hurt pretty fast. Well, they're there to, the soldiers were there to tell tourists to knock it off as well as to not vandalize it. One of the things tourists would do is they would carve their names on the thermal features and soldiers, you know, would have to tell them to not do it. Well, here, especially when you've got the wealthy people who like to go and put their names on it, you have this, this soldier who is, a, you know, you know, kind of from at least a working class environment um, telling these, these rich, posh people to knock it off. And if you don't, I'm going to arrest you. I mean, it can create some tension there. And, you know, people would try to bribe their way out of it. And, um, you know, soldiers wouldn't, would have none of it, at least, in some cases, in some cases they might have, but um, we don't have the sources for that. 
unfortunately, but they, um, you know, they, they would see them do these kinds of things. And so this policing element kind of creates what I call the a social legal paradox, whereas socially the people enforcing the laws are of a lower social class, but they have greater legal power over over their social superiors. And um, that created some tension, which is why I think, you know, um, you know, and I, I delve into some some of the psychological theories about this this kind of tension. That you know why they you know are, you know maybe wantonly drinking and shooting their guns on the decks of their of their their soldier stations as a way to release that tension that they're feeling because they're not always treated well by the people below them. And, um, when Rudyard Kipling came into the park, he talked about how the soldiers who who would um, you know provide these types of uh, these types of uh, duties they would, um, you know, be abused or not, you know, the, the tourists would want nothing to do with them. And uh, even Rudyard Kipling, who himself is, you know, slightly snobbish, uh, he felt he felt so bad for these soldiers that he, you know, he, he would sit there and talk with what would sit there and talk with them. Although he did kind of look down on, he said, well, the British cavalry is clearly superior to these guys, but, but he does give a very interesting view of, of, you know, the, the tourists and, and their interactions and particularly in, terms of policing with, with the soldiers. And so um, those would be some of the things, but probably the hardest job they had to do is fighting forest fires. The, uh, you know, fires would break out in the park and, and the soldiers would, at that time, the idea was is natural fires, unnatural fires. You want to preserve the park no matter what. So they would go out and they would fight the fires. And it was hard, back, you know, backbreaking work with soldiers who, um, weren't trained necessarily to fight forest fires, particularly in the wilderness, and they didn't even have the equipment to do it. And so, um, you know, they're they're out there just kind of making it up as they go. And even even the post commanders are very frustrated um, with this effort. And it's uh, some of, here are some of the newspaper accounts and and uh, some of the the superintendent reports are very colorful in their descriptions of what a rough duty that was. And it was hard. It was brutal. And the soldiers aren't trained for it. Now, the advantage of the military here is that they were organized. And so, um, you know, you could, with unit organization, you might be able to to uh, kind of be able to fight fires fairly effectively. But man, they, it wasn't what, what those soldiers signed up for. And, it, and they certainly didn't have the equipment to do it uh, for a long time. And, and getting that equipment from the Department of the Interior uh, was, was oftentimes very, very... Um, contentious between the, the 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 superintendent the military superintendents and and the secretary and then also congress yeah and so these soldiers are doing things that they're not they're not trained to do and so you talk a bit in the book about kind of the soldiers response and so we, we've talked about that a little bit can you just talk about a little bit more about the sense of just isolation that these people are feeling because there's so few of them patrolling a very large area um, actually, yeah. Can you just talk a little bit more about the isolation and kind of the the way that they were dispersed? You, you you talk a bit about I think it's chapter three where you talk about the various areas of the park and how they're kind of distributed and and so um, which I think kind of would help to illuminate illuminate kind of the sense of isolation that a lot of these soldiers might feel. Sure. The main fort is a place called Fort Yellowstone, and it was the it's the headquarters of the park, and it's at Mammoth Hot Springs, which is um, just inside, about three miles inside the northern border of the park. It's still the park headquarters today. And 
traditionally that was the jumping off point for what was called the grand tour. The roads in Yellowstone um, are basically a figure eight and they follow the, the original stagecoach um, from the 1800s stagecoach route fairly well today. So if you, if you ever see a, a picture of Yellowstone, there's like this figure eight of roads and that's basically the same as it was back then. And at the top of that figure eight is Fort Yellowstone. And that's the, the headquarters. And that was where most of the soldiers were stationed. However, Yellowstone is huge and it's, uh, you know, it's at 8,000 feet, 2,000 or so square miles. Um, and it, you know, they, there's a lot of wilderness there and there's a lot off of those roads, a lot of places off those roads. And the two things that they needed to do, like I mentioned, was they had to patrol for poachers, which is in the backcountry off those roads. Then they also had to patrol the more traditional tourists on the roads. And to do that effectively is very difficult. And so um, they had soldier, what are called soldier stations, little outposts around the park. And one of the inspectors who came through in uh, 1902 said, you know, this is a throwback to the frontier, you know, which at this point, um, you know, in military terms, I mean, the frontier officially closes according to the U.S. Census in 1890. But um, really, in, in the northern plains, you know, it's you know twenty twenty years since there's been you know the railroads have come through, and and really any kind of frontier contention has has been stopped. Um, but he said, you know, this is a throwback to the days, you know, thirty years ago when you know you would have a post in the American West, and you'd have little outposts out around. And he said that's what that's what's going on here. And so these. Outposts are around, and they vary over time because they build new ones and take some down. And um, these outposts are basically cabins, uh, usually two or three room cabins. And uh, you would put a, a basically anywhere between three and six people in these. You'd have a non-commissioned officer that would be in charge of them, and then um, you know several privates. And it would be their responsibility to patrol backcountry to patrol the the woods uh, or the roads and um, as well as protect the thermal features. And so at, at where there's thermal features, there tends to be soldier stations. Uh, if you go into Yellowstone today at a place called Norris, um, Norris Kaiser Basin, uh, they have one, they have uh, one of these soldier stations still, um, still up and it's the, uh, it's now a museum for the national park ranger. And it's, it's a great place to be. It's very picturesque sending it. Highly recommend going there if you ever get the chance. And but these would be in the literally out there. And, and you have to realize that in the wintertime, when the tourist season ends, all right, the poaching continues. And so these soldiers would be out there. And they would be, they could be, you know, 15, 20 miles from the next soldier station. And it snows, you know, it snows to be 150, 180 inches, 120 to 180 inches, depending on where you are in the park. Um, and so these guys can be very, very isolated. Now they did have, um, and even in the summertime, it's very isolating even in, back then as well. They did have, they eventually ran telephone lines um, around to these soldier stations. Although in the wintertime, sometimes avalanches would cut the lines, um, particularly in, in the mountains. 
but they would often because and I know this from the records the, the the orders would say hey you can't gossip on these lines you know, you got to knock off the gossip it's only for official business well what that's telling me is is that these guys are so lonely and they're you know they're stuck with these five people and yeah there's some tourists that come through but they don't have a huge amount at least positive interaction with that they're getting on the phone and they're just chit-chatting you know i mean they you know, they're they're trying to you know keep in social contact with other people and so much so that, you know, the, the commanders are getting a little upset and telling them to get off the line, you know, stay off the phone. Part of that, you have to realize that the old party line idea is that everybody on the phone could probably hear what was going on in the other ones as well. But, um, but they're trying, they're really feeling that sense of isolation, even in the summertime. And um, at a place called Sylvan Pass, um, where I went through really in depth in one of the court martial records, you also get that feeling of, you know, yeah, you got to go someplace if you to have these social interactions. The uh, the nearest uh, hotel in that particular case, because it's right on the east entrance of the park, was uh, about three miles away, just outside the park, at a place called Pahaska Teepee, which was a hotel built by Buffalo Bill. And they would go there and they would talk with the the um, the proprietor of the hotel and the people who ran it um, with the maids there because man you know there's not a lot of uh, not a lot of uh, uh, women around except for especially women that they could uh, socialize with um, other than you know the working class maids at these hotels and so they would go there and that sometimes led to you know, you know when you've got a military base, you've got a disproportionate amount of men to women usually. Now, uh, in this case, you've got more maids here that's, that's you know, uh, at the working at the hotels. It's great. But, you know, there's a certain level of competition too. And uh, the sergeant at Sylvan Pass, he would uh, uh, time his patrols every Saturday because they had to patrol to Lake Hotel, which is quite a ways away. Um, he would he would go from Sylvan Pass on the east entrance to Lake Hotel, which is almost in the center of the park, and that was part of the regular patrol route, and everybody had to take their turn. But he always made sure that he could time his uh, patrols for Saturday because there was always a dance Saturday night at the hotel at Lake where there was more uh, where there were uh, more maids, and so he would always time it and, and do that. And, and but I mean that's the efforts that you know they're they're riding hours and hours on horseback just to to you know socialize with in this case people with the opposite sex but just other people as well and so you know i mean they're really isolated and when you get into the winter time man you got to imagine how tough that is you could go you know you you're, you're stuck with five guys you know five six guys in a little three-room cabin and you can't even really get out a whole lot yeah you're supposed to go patrol uh out in the winter and so you get some skiing and, and all of that but you come back i mean this is like being in an antarctic um, research station, you know, and, and actually I pulled in some in the murder of uh, uh, Private Cunningham where at Sylvan Pass, I, I kind of bring in some of the, the medical theory about that, which I thought was very interesting about, you know, what does isolation, this deep, heavy isolation do to you? And, um, you know, I mean, you're there, you don't have a lot, there's no way to get really get reading material um, and so, you know, one, one person who was in charge of a different station, one by, uh, old faithful said, you know, the cards get worn out, you're playing cards. All you can do is play cards anyway, and they get worn out. Uh, the reading material, you've read all the reading material. And so, man, you're done with that. You can, you can talk with your, the people, but I mean, you know, after, after six months of talking with the same six people, what, what all do you have left to say? And so, you know, it can create some, some real interesting social uh, social situations, which, you know, led into that murder at, 
at the Sylvan Pass, and and um, you know there, there's biological elements to it too because they didn't have you know I mean they're even more isolated because you know they don't have uh, always phone access if the phone lines are cut in the winter time, and you, know, you can lose uh, uh, or have your uh, a particular hormone called T3 that reduces, which can make you more irritable. It can um, you know and any any parent who's been living through the COVID isolation will tell you you can become more irritable with <laughs> your own kids. I'll guarantee it. And mm-hmm. um, you get more irritable, you get short tempered. And, and um, in some cases, in that particular case, it turned very deadly. So. And so you talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, there's always the, the very kind of dramatic choice that a soldier can make, which of course is desertion. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how that played out? Well, yeah, Fort Yellowstone actually had one of the highest desertion rates in uh, a, a military post west of the Mississippi, uh, so much so that they had to have their own um, investigation, which which I found was very interesting. I was at the National Archives, and I was going through the military records and um, came across this one that they actually were, the U.S. Army was so concerned about the desertion at Fort Yeltsin that they um, did a special inspection just to uh, try to figure out why soldiers were leaving. Now, this is what, I think is, is interesting because we have a tendency to assume, well, of course, this has got to be easy duty. And when you read like Aubrey Haynes's Yellowstone story and stuff, they really talk about, oh yeah, oh, you know, well, some soldiers may not have liked it, but this was easy duty for them. You know, they're in a beautiful place. And we would assume because it's a today very popular tourist destination, 4 million people go there a year. We would assume that, oh, this would be a this would be a, a cherry of an assignment, right? You would love it. The soldiers didn't like it. And um, the report goes through and it lists several reasons why there was so much desertion there. And um, and it, it there's a number of factors I thought were very interesting, one of which was tied to, you know, just things that are typical at any military unit, which is, you know, you got uh, officers or uh, non-commissioned officers who are, you know, unpleasant, not very good at their job, uh, treat their soldiers poorly. There certainly was some of that. Um, the commanding officer for Yellowstone had said, oh, it's because the recruits that are coming in are just really bad recruits. They're, they're really poor recruits. And it's, it's because of them that we have this desertion. Well, the inspectors found out, mm, yeah, there's occasionally some, but that's not really the main cause of this problem. Um, and uh, they said, well, there are some things that are unique about the park, uh, this 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 posting in the park. One was it was so isolated, so very isolated. The only town was this place called Gardner, which wasn't very big. And, um, you, know, you know, a couple dozen buildings, you know, shanty buildings. And for the most part, you know, it could be bustling during the summertime. But in the wintertime, there wasn't much left in Gardner other than the prostitutes, which the soldiers would go to frequently and the barkeeps. But nonetheless, they, um, they, that was the only place of entertainment, uh, unless you really want to take a big long trip to a place called Bozeman or Livingston. Um, but that was, that's a ways away, uh, certainly by those standards and, um, and regular rail service, you know, especially when the tourist season ends, you know, trains only go a couple times a week. So, you know, Gardner was it. And other than that, they were on their own to entertain themselves. And so the isolation of the park, much less being in isolated on the interior of the park, um, that was, that was tough. One of the ones that really stuck out to me too, was the, what, um, the, uh, multiple soldiers apparently referred to as the disrespect to the uniform. Uh, 
And that was, uh, as I pull in all the other sources, I think what we've been already talking about, uh, these these people looking down on soldiers as their social inferiors and clearly showing disrespect uh, to them, particularly in their legal you know, enforcement duties, you know, they saw themselves, even though they had to redefine kind of their idea of, of being a soldier to including also being somewhat of a police officer, if you will, you know, the fact that these, these people were disrespecting them. I mean, when a policeman tells you to do something, you're supposed to do it in their mind, right? Well, you know, the, the, they're being shown the disrespect by some of the, the episodes where, where, um, you know, the tourists are, are, you know, not doing that. And so, you know, that, that led to, to part of it as well. Um, and, you know, so there was a, there was a whole myriad of reasons. It was what they, uh, what the inspector called an undesirable posting, which is very interesting, especially because most of the historical literature on this, which again, is fairly scant, tends to assume that this was good posting and people liked it. And even some of the signage around, um, for Yellowstone itself now, because there's a kind of a walking tour in Yellowstone of the old fort, um, talk about that, though, this was a good duty and they liked their duty here. Well, that might be true for some soldiers, but not for all of them. And at certain times, particularly around 1908, when they had that in um, that special investigation, it was very clear that the park itself was was undesirable, that being stationed there was was definitely undesirable. I mean, it was harsh duty. You're asked to do not only regular soldier duties, but also additional, uh, you know, duties that you may not have ever really wanted to do. Um, the abuse from from tourists. You know, it was it was not always not always a, a pleasant place to be. Yeah, it definitely seems like it's one of those places that's really nice to visit. <laughs> but living there, especially back in those days with few utilities, the isolation, I, it just must have been a much different. Obviously, it's a much different experience than today. I mean, even living there today would be somewhat isolating, even if you've got Internet and TV and all of that stuff. You, but there's still the sparseness of people. But back then, without having any of those amenities. It, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Well, so I, don't know. I mean, I loved I loved living there. Uh, it was great. I had a time of my life, but, you know, it wasn't for everybody. So and it still isn't. But, you know, it is, you know, visiting and living, you're right, are absolutely different things. Yeah, especially for people that didn't grow up in that area. I'm sure it's mm-hmm. uh, probably different if you're used to it. But yeah, somebody coming from, I don't know, the urban West Coast or the East Coast, <laughs> that would be quite a traumatic uh, and dramatic, uh, dramatic change. So let's but talk that, about... the interesting part about that, I think, though, is that it also showed the interior, the Department of Interior, that soldiers weren't really um, suited for this. I mean, eventually, I mean, they were there for 30 years. They were there for a generation, for crying out loud. But eventually, they start figuring out that soldiers aren't what is needed and and that they need to have someone who can be in the mountains and stuff like that. So really, the, the soldiers, even though the administrative, and this is where all the the historical literature admits that the administrative element, you know, helps create the National Park Service. But the the soldiers, and more importantly, what the the soldiers were not, um, actually leads into, you know, well, what is it we need? That begs the question, what is it that we should have if we're going to not have soldiers? Who should be more effective patrolling the park? And so it kind of leads into that um, thing. And But, it, you know, it took, that was a decade-long discussion they had. That's a third of the history of the military and 
in Yellowstone was that discussion uh, about, you know, well, soldiers aren't it, but what should it be? But what they weren't was as much as, as what they were that helped create the National Park Service. Yeah, so let's talk about the end of the the military era there. So obviously we've got a lot of they, they've built up a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge about how this is affecting soldiers, but also learning what soldiers do well there, what soldiers don't do well there. And so what were the lessons that people learned from this military occupation? And then how did that influence the transition to civilian rule once the military left? Well, the you know, what they I think what they found first and foremost was, I mean, the social tension was actually fairly significant because it's real interesting that the soldiers were not allowed to go into the hotels unless they were specifically invited. And then they had to be in their dress uniform and things like that, but they were not allowed to go into the hotels to enforce the park laws. Now, this is really interesting because it's like this designated sphere of of influence where you know the these rich hotel tourists are like hey we don't you know we need to have our break from from these you know social inferiors who have a power we're not comfortable with over us and so you know they end at the door and then everything is correct and right inside kind of a domestic space if you will of the hotel where they had their social apparatus which is interesting because you know okay alcohol is not supposed to be sold in the park but guess what every park hotel had a had a bar and they, the soldiers couldn't go in and enforce it. Um, and so, you know, they could do whatever they want. Well, you can't have that. I mean, and, and part of this is, you know, after you get into the, to the early 20th century, you know, in the progressive era, and there's kind of this democratization, if you will, going on that's, that's at least trying to chip away at some of these, you know, class distinctions. Um, you know, the, 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 recogni- the recognition that if you're going to enforce the rules, you have to have people that are talented, which the soldiers um, oftentimes were not. I mean, like I said, they they didn't have the skills. They weren't trained in it. They learned it. By the time they learned it, they were usually shipped off to somewhere else. Um, so you got to have someone that has the skills. You have to have someone who um, has the motivation, which many soldiers did not. And that was very clear um, because, uh, and I think you have multiple streams of evidence on this, not the least of which is you have written sources saying that, oh yeah, there's no hunting in the park, but guess what? Soldiers are hunting. Uh, there's, and, and they're not even really hiding it that much. Um, one, uh, sergeant is going through the park and he's actually writing his brother in kind of a diary format. And he, he talks about, oh man, they're going to be they're going to eat well this winter, man. There, there, there's lots of there. We had some venison for dinner tonight, and they're in the middle of the park, right? They're, they had something. Well, the only way they're getting that is by you know hunting the game in the park, which they're they're telling tourists not to do, but they themselves are doing. So they're not very motivated. Some places there were reports that the soldiers were actually working in cahoots with some of the poachers. Oh yeah, there's a big herd of elk over there, so go ahead and help them. Um, and so they weren't clearly motivated, probably were not real motivated to engage in, uh, the policing of tourists. Cause that, uh, at least from what, what I saw in the records was not a pleasant interaction, usually interacting with tourists and, and trying to enforce laws. So, you, you know, that wasn't, they probably weren't motivated for that. It's probably not why they joined up. In fact, there were some cases where, uh, tourists, um, who kind of wrote these travel diaries, talk to them well you know the soldiers say this isn't 
You know, they, they expected to go to the Philippines because there was kind of a, a insurrection or a war, really, a uh, real nasty one actually uh, going on in the Philippines. That's where they thought they were going to go, but they ended up going into the park and having to do this duty, which wasn't what they signed up for. And so they weren't motivated. So they don't have skills. They're not necessarily motivated. And they're also not acceptable legal enforcement to the people with whom they were you know, in charge of, of, of policing. And uh, so much so that, again, they're excluded from the hotel. So when they put together, you know, when they start having this very long discussion um, about, you know, what it is it, it, that that they should be, you know, if they're, if they're not going to be soldiers, eventually it's like, well, you got to have people that are trained, that know what they're doing, kind of like the scouts that they had hired. Um, so you need to have them. You need to have someone who's socially acceptable. Um, and you have to have someone who's motivated. Well, um, they eventually are able to do that. And they are, you know, whereas there's, you know, a couple hundred soldiers during uh, patrolling the park, which, and they always wanted more soldiers. It's it very interesting, almost over the parks. Like, it's so big, we need more soldiers. But when they create the National Park Service, they do it with a couple dozen. And they do it more effectively. Now, part of the reason for that is, is that they pay the rangers better. Um, and so they, according to, um, according to, uh, at least some of the, the superintendents, you know, they can attract a, a better class of, of, of people to be Rangers, but they also know it. They're motivated. They understand the region. They understand the job. And because of that, then they're uh, probably also a little bit more socially acceptable enough to be able to go into and enforce the rules within the hotels as well. Now, part of that too is that the you know the strict class lines, you know, of, of say the 1890s are are really weakening significantly by 1918, 1920. But nonetheless, um, you know, I think part of that is is playing out as well. And so, you know, what the soldiers were not is, is pointing them in the direction of what they needed for the Rangers as well. Now, interestingly enough, you look at Ranger, you know, even today modern park ranger uniforms. They look an awful lot like World War One era military uniforms, and that's not by mistake because the army did bring a lot, um, a lot of, of, of its traditions in there. But you know, you go from a couple hundred soldiers to a couple dozen rangers patrolling the park more effectively than than ever before. Yeah, part of that is is that they were able to get people that were more talented to that had talent and motivation to be able to do the job that a couple hundred men had done before. Yeah. And this is a, like I said before, this is a, it's a really fun book and um, I encourage everybody to check it out. But uh, before we go, can you tell us what's next for you? Do you have any other new projects on the horizon? Well, there's a chapter actually that from this book that didn't make its way into the book. Um, it's kind of a fun book. I mean, as you know, historians don't usually think about, market potential. I just wanted to write this book because I thought, you know, I'm interested in social class. I'm interested in Yellowstone. I thought it would be a great book, great story to tell. And um, I didn't write it as particularly one that would have market potential. But when I submitted it, um, the editors thought that, oh, yeah, this does. And some of the, the, in the peer review process, the peer reviewers said, oh, this is great, except for chapter six. And chapter six, which didn't make it into the book, dealt with another court-martial case, um, again, extraordinarily rich detail, about a soldier who was court-martialed um, for performing immoral acts on other soldiers. And um, 
and yeah, and this this was consensual. So don't get me wrong; it was very interesting, very very fascinating chapter. Um, but because it dealt with sexual content in the National Park Service, doesn't um, allow books with sexual content to be sold in the park. I think they're thinking more of the historical fiction, oftentimes sold in in uh, the bookstores. Um, there was a little bit of give and take about whether that chapter, and I really wanted that chapter because I thought it it really showed a lot of what soldiers' lives were like, uh, um, sexuality being a part of that, but also you know the the social interactions that were going on. It was it was a very fascinating uh, chapter, and um, and I kind of stuck to my guns, which actually probably delayed the release of the book here. And I talked with people on you know some of my colleagues about this on campus. I delivered a paper. Uh, last summer uh, at Historicizing Masculinities at the University of Newcastle in England and talked with people there about it. And they're like, well, you know, you know, I admire you. And they were a sympathetic audience. They loved it and they thought it was great. But they also said, you know, here's the deal. Even though university presses are in theory not, you know, always interested in making a profit, those books that do sell allow other books by scholars, which are very important books, to be sold. And so it turned out not to be as black and white as I initially was making it. And I relented and let let it go. But um, so now I'm kind of shaped, I've shaped it up into an article, although it's long enough, I could maybe make a, like a little micro history out of it. There's a book that I use in, in my class on, on the Renaissance uh, called A Modest Axe, The Life of a Lesbian Nun in Renaissance Italy by Judith Brown that um, takes one particular kind of court case of a nun or investigation of a nun and and her sexuality and it's very very light. This was called micro history. Um, I could probably make it into a small book like that if I if I really wanted to. So I've toyed around with that idea, um, but that's the immediate one. On the long term, uh, my uh, my goal is to um, uh, continue looking at um, looking at the court martial records because I think those are. Uh, greatly underutilized and I'm a big proponent. I mean, again, my, one of my minor fields is my master's degree was uh, early modern Europe and microhistory was, is a big thing there. And, you know, that's a whole nother debate, you know, about the benefits and um, limitations of microhistory, but um, microhistories oftentimes give this glimpse into the world of people who don't normally leave written otherwise written records and i think that if using these uh court martial records you can start to get a a little bit better view of life in the military um out in the west particularly um but i I think you could expand it um you know for for soldiers in the 19th century uh and i'm going to look at the west probably and look at some of these court martial records um, and what they can tell us about life, uh, even though they're exceptional cases, because obviously they get court-martialed or whatever, but um, you know they can give you a real interesting glimpse into the world of the common soldier, where their voice actually comes out in ways that we don't traditionally see. And um, so I'm going to start collecting. I've already started collecting a few of those, uh, and so I'm going to. I think that's where I'm going to go go with that is, is how these court martial records can really um, enlighten us to, to otherwise silent groups in history. Well, those both sound like fascinating projects and I uh, look forward to seeing what comes out of those. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today, Dr. Rust. You bet. <laughs>